Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel... We've got commentator Andrea Walker, Mo Lovett, who's a writer and researcher, Nigel Nelson, who's the political editor at The Sunday People, and you know the drill on Jubes and Co. By now, it's not just about us here and our thoughts. No, it is about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. Don't forget, of course, we've got an app. If you've not got it yet, we're on YouTube. You can subscribe to us there. We're across all the social media channels. Uh, we're on DAB Radio. We are absolutely everywhere. So you can take us with us, with you, should I say. You've got no excuses for not watching and listening to GB News. We are, as I said, everywhere. So good evening to you, wherever you're listening and watching tonight. And our top story, President Joe Biden has called for a war crimes trial against Russian President Vladimir Putin and said he'd seek more sanctions after reported atrocities in Ukraine. His comments, of course, come after the retreat of Russian forces in the town of Bukha in Ukraine, which led to the discovery of the killing of hundreds of civilians. Now, joining me to look at this is Paul Garlick, a criminal barrister who's previously sat as a war crimes judge in Bosnia. Good evening to you. Uh, first things first, I guess, Paul, help us uh, understand this, if you will. What is the definition of a war crime? Well, a war crime is one of the international law crimes um, set out under the War Crimes Convention. So basically, they fall into three groups. And also, there's one extra category, which is genocide. So there are crimes against peace, that's planning or preparing um, or initiating aggression or war. And then there are atrocities against persons or property which constitute violations of international criminal law, murder, ill treatment. Um, and the difference between war crimes, as we describe them, and crimes against humanity is that war crimes have been committed in moments of armed conflict, like Ukraine, whereas crimes against humanity can, can be committed at any time. And with crimes against humanity, they have to be committed against a whole range of the civilian population. So that distinguishes the, the various categories of war crimes. And Paul, where would a, a trial such as this actually take place? Well, there are a number of venues. Um, the, the first one that springs to mind, of course, is the International Criminal Court. Um, there are difficulties there because of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, but they can be overcome, certainly, because Ukraine has on two occasions now accepted the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, although it's not actually a, a party to the, to the statute that set up the International Criminal Court. Twice now, latest in 2015, they accepted the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, and that's sufficient for the prosecutor, as he has, to commence an investigation and to, to launch a case against individuals, because the cases in the International Criminal Court are brought against individual people rather than the state. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned individual people there, but, you know, some people might be familiar with the case of the uh, Sudanese uh, president. He had a warrant, essentially, put out against him by the ICC. I think it was back in 2009. Uh, he turned around, and I think his direct quote was, they could eat it because he didn't recognise their remit and still uh, hasn't kind of faced the consequences. So it sounds good, and, I mean, everyone's seen these atrocities, but in essence, you know, I'm trying to figure out what this would actually look like if the ICC did indeed uh, deem that Putin was guilty of this, uh, you know, th these war crimes. How would you then enforce it? They don't have their own enforcement arms. So what would it practically look like? Well, they do have their enforcement arm. It's through the United Nations, but unfortunately, it's through the uh, through the. Uh the the, um, uh, the Security Council of the United Nations and the big difficulty is that Russia has a veto there. But the biggest problem with these cases is getting the defendants actually within the the geographic court. Uh, trials in the absence of a defendant are very unusual, and in fact, the International Criminal Court has never conducted a trial in the absence of a defendant, because one of the articles of the statute that set up the International Criminal Court appears to expressly reject the possibility of a trial without the defendant being present. It actually says the accused shall be present during the trial. But that could be interpreted in such a way that if someone deliberately absents themselves and refuses, they, they could possibly have a trial in absentia. But the difficulty is, as you rightly say, Michelle, is you can get a verdict of guilty but you can only enforce that verdict with a sentence of imprisonment, and that means you've got to get the defendant geographically within the court to actually put him into prison. Yeah. And there's no question about it. You couldn't extradite Putin or anybody else from Russia. They just wouldn't agree to handing him over. So to an extent, that is the difficulty. It's although you get a conviction, which in itself is important because it recognizes that it has been proven in a court of law that someone is guilty of crimes against humanity, but you can't enforce it because you can't get them into court, you can't arrest them physically and, and then send them off to prison. Yeah, which is exactly what we're seeing uh, over in Sudan with the former president there. But Paul Gallic, fascinating yeah. stuff. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Nigel Thanks, Nelson, uh, your thoughts on all of this? Well, I mean, I think that um, Paul outlined it brilliantly. And the real problem is uh, when, you, when you work out how you're going to get Putin to, uh, to, a, to an international criminal court, only way of doing it is if Putin actually falls. So, in other words, that if you bring him down, it does mean that the Russians can actually hand him over, which, in fact, is what, has ha what, what happened to, um, to those in Yugoslavia who, were there, who, were then, who were then ended up there and then ended up being jailed. I mean, it's perfectly clear that um, he is responsible for war crimes. As the president, the buck stops with him. You'll have an awful lot more individuals on the ground who will also... Uh, quite clearly responsible for atrocities. Well, he's going to have to, he's going to, have to go through a trial, and that's going to be... Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, OK, let's not prejudge pre the trial, but there is a case against, there is a case against him. Um, and thank God for the international media who've been out there who can verify what is being claimed, claimed there. But the question is, uh, as Paul says, the question is, how do you get him there? Only way of getting, the, getting him there is if Putin falls. Yeah, and uh, just before I bring in the other two, you mentioned the media... And I find it fascinating the role that the media has because it must be so complicated right now to determine what's genuine, 
uh, what's not, fake news. There's a whole lot of propaganda going on. Uh, so how do you do that? Well, and I think that the that um, yesterday was was uh, an absolute classic. That you had um, the international media going into Bucha uh, uh, immediately after the Ukrainian forces. They went in within four hours of the Ukrainian forces taking Bucha from the Russians. They walked past dead bodies. They saw civilians with their hands tied uh, uh, behind their backs with bullet holes in the back of their heads. So although the media can't verify the numbers we get out of Ukraine, what you can do, is because you can see it with your own eyes, is you can see the atrocities that have been committed. Yeah, you can see the atrocities that's been committed. But, um, of course, Putin is denying that this has been committed by Russia. He himself was actually trying to uh, call war crimes against... Which the is the importance of the media. Of, which is, of, it, of an independent media going in and witnessing it with their own eyes. Andre? Yeah, well, look, I, I want to just take a step back for a second. I've uh, noticed that the British police, the Metropolitan Police, have been putting signs up in airports saying, have you come back from Ukraine? Have you witnessed a war crime? The first and most important thing for me is to do the investigation. We can talk about the ICC being a bit of a waste of time. Funnily enough, and, and I don't make this a flippant comment, I, I had a friend of mine, uh, Ivan Ivanovich, who was prosecuted at The Hague for war crimes and was found not guilty. And so it's a fair and sensible process. And actually, what uh, Nigel talks about in Yugoslavia was the way the Serbs, when Milosevic fell, were really keen to send people for trial in order to effectively exonerate the nation. I believe that process can happen in Russia. But the first and most important thing is to get this detail noted down and to decide what's, what's actually taken place and what hasn't and build a case. Look, I personally believe, and you can disagree with me as much as you like, but I personally believe that Putin's going to end up with a bullet in his head from one of his own bodyguards or oligarchs or people around him. But either way, it's important for the victims, even if he never faces trial, to understand what happened to their relatives. Yeah, and don't forget, by the way, I mean, what you believe these days is a challenge in itself. But apparently, depending on who and what you believe... Uh, Putin's approval ratings inside of Russia well, are sky high. Well, it, well it, it, it's worth pointing out the Slobodan Milosevic defence. The Slobodan Milosevic defence was, um, I ordered my troops to go into Kosovo and I'm not responsible for what they did there. It was local militias that killed people. So he didn't effectively deny the genocide. He, he denied that he was responsible for ordering it and then died of a heart attack halfway through the proceedings. To be honest with you, I don't think it was a conspiracy. I think it was probably the pressure of the trial. But people will say it was some sort of dodgy behaviour. Yeah. Well, I'm quite wary of the, about this jump to a judici judicial response quite right now in the heat of war, because actually what Ukraine needs is military support. It needs guns, it needs tanks, it needs money. It doesn't need promise of its day in court. And I, I think in some senses, the remarks that Biden's made today and this pushing it into a, a war crimes tribunal while we're still in the heat of war kind of exemplifies that actually the West is not united in its response and what it, how it wants to stand but up. But they've, also, but, they've, but they've also sent a huge number of what the Ukrainians want, which is the, 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 the single man uh, fire and forget missiles to hit tanks. And it's been hugely successful. So what did Zelensky ask for? 3,000 and, and they got sent it. I'm not saying they haven't no, sure. done nothing, but I do think there's still a very disjointed response. Oh. You know, even, you know, even the EU's not kind of speaking... Even the EU, eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, you know, the nature response and all the rest of it. But, you know, this could be a very long war. Um, we're right in the heat of it right now. And I do think the media does have a role. You know, as uh, Nigel said, they go in, they document, they report on the atrocities. And all of this is very important for uh, prosperity. But actually, um, you know, what Ukraine needs right now is guns and tanks and they money, not lawyers and tribunals. But actually, um, Nigel, people have seen, you know, those scenes that we've been seeing in Booker, they are just horrendous. I mean, you can see them uncensored on social media and they are just, they're heartbreaking. And many people have seen these images and called again for the West to do more. Well, um, I mean, I think that you will find, uh, as Mo's been, been calling for there, you will find that the arms shipments into Ukraine will step up. So that will happen. There is a limit to how far the West can go. I mean, you remember that the, uh, the Poles were quite keen to give Ukraine their old MiG-29s. Yes. The Americans said yes, and then they said no. I think no was the right thing to do because we are still talking about crossing red lines. And the two red lines that exist there are for NATO, if Russian troops cross into a NATO country, we're in World War Three. The red line when it comes to Russia is you mustn't use weapons that can hit Moscow and a MiG-29 can. So, you, so um, from, a, from an international diplomatic uh, position, you must keep the war contained in Ukraine. Horrific though it is. But, 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 but was, was Liz Truss talking about that today? Ah, hold that thought. You oh, bring me sorry. up nicely. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Andrea, Liz Truss, of course, Foreign Secretary, uh, was indeed speaking today. Let's have a listen. We need to announce a tough new wave of sanctions. The reality is that money is still flowing from the West into Putin's war machine, and that has to stop. In Brussels, I will be working with our partners to go further, as has been advocated by Dimitro, in banning Russian ships from our ports, in cracking down on Russian banks, in going after new industries, filling Putin's war chest. Andrea, there you go. Good segue. She was indeed speaking, basically, uh, as paraphrase, calling for more pressure sanctions. Your thoughts? I, I felt the totality of that was a significant step up. I mean, when she was talking about weapons, you know, the, the word defensive weapons appears to have the first bit has been dropped and we're now just talking about weapons. I, I personally I personally think that there's a couple of things going on. I think that the West smells blood. I think they're starting to feel that Putin's starting to lose badly and now it's all time to jump on board and be part of the victory. But I also think the outrage of the genocide and I think the number of people now who are comparing this situation to the situation with Adolf Hitler, rightly or wrongly, people are thinking to themselves, we let him away with it, we let him away with it and in the end it was far too late for millions of people by the time we, we got involved. Now, the concern of people watching this is everything that I've just laid out is World War III. Mm. Yeah, huh? and that, that, that is absolutely the problem, that the, um, the, 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 game for the, for the game plan for the international leaders has got to be to really tighten the noose on Russia, what Liz Truss has just been talking about, that means extra sanctions, that means lethal weaponry that we are sending there, but not to cross the line to go to what you're talking about, a nuclear war. Yeah, and um, Russia, of course, they've, uh, they're seeking a UN Security Council meeting. They are saying that uh, the videos, etc., that you saw uh, over in places like Bukha, it, it wasn't the Russians that did that. So they're trying to get their side of the, the story ahead, Mo. 
Yeah, I mean, there's clearly a kind of propaganda war playing out in the media as well. Um, I think, you know, being sceptical is perhaps a little bit of a dangerous step here because there's a very there's a there's a difference between kind of out and out lies in the media, and you know, we've seen Zelensky talking up his game, and we've talked yeah. a bit. You know, there is always going to be the first casualty of war. Of course, is 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 truth, but um, those images are not faked, as some people have been. Some of these mad attacks on social media would have believe um, and they will be documented and as I say they will be there for historical record that these things have happened um, but of course the, you know that this is what happens in war Zelensky is playing to the media mm. a lot he's winning the information war I think hopefully not at the detriment of winning the actual war um, and Putin is probably winning the war in his own country but, um, but we can see it from the outside and hopefully we but, can but can, I, can I throw this slight this slight political hand grenade in I think a lot of people that I speak to a lot of people on my Twitter feed a lot of people People who watch GB News are going to say the behaviour of the European Union in Northern Ireland uh, was terrible and potentially would have created conflict there if people hadn't have stepped in. And they can they can understand why people in Ukraine are saying that the behaviour of the European Union in Ukraine would cause conflict. My argument is I don't think Ukraine should join the European Union or NATO, but at the same time there has clearly been uh, behaviour by Russian soldiers which is genocidal. And, and Vladimir Putin has just conscripted another 135,000 uh, young people into the military basically to die at the hands of professional soldiers in Ukraine. It's so shameful. Why do you bring the EU into it? This because this is worse than the news system. But no, I, I bring the EU into it and NATO into it because I, I just feel that there are plenty of people who are really angry with the behaviour of NATO and the European Union. But, but I just think it's important to point out there's no moral equivalence here between what the EU oh, yeah. done, has done what and what NATO Putin's done. What should NATO do that they're not doing while avoiding World War III? Well, no, I just don't think that Ukraine should join NATO. No, no, I, I agree mean, with that. No, I mean, to be, I, I, to be fair, to be fair, they're giving the Russians a hiding anyway, so I don't think they necessarily... No, I mean, it, it looks <laughs> as if the Ukrainians are winning, and they have said that they're, they're prepared to be a neutral country yes. if, if we can get to peace and not join NATO. I was just a bit confused, Andre, about where you thought... NATO had not done enough. I'm trying to... Try no, no, no. No, my point is, I think it's about NATO and EU membership that has caused concern amongst people. I, th I think I don't think there's anything within this conflict itself where NATO has behaved badly. In fact, uh, to be honest with you, I mean, the, 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 the arms shipments that have come from NATO have been absolutely fantastic for the Ukrainians. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of narrative around NATO needs to do more, NATO needs to do more, NATO needs to do more. What we're seeing in the conflict in Ukraine is absolutely appalling. And mm -hmm. as always, it's innocent civilians that are in the crossfire of all of this. But ultimately, Ukraine are not a NATO member. And no. I find it fascinating the calls that NATO should do more because if NATO get involved and, I don't know, get involved militarily, etc., then what is the point in being a member of NATO? I think, I think the point... I think, I think the point... Fight the... For, for wars the, yeah, the, po the, point, the point I was making was, you know, the idea of NATO membership and the idea of EU membership potentially solicited some of the tensions that have taken place. I mean, I think it has exposed the weaknesses in these international organisations. I really do think that. And I think Nigel makes a good point because there is a real consideration here to make. Do we just bow down before a nuclear power and say you can do whatever you like and you can trample over a sovereign country as they have done in Ukraine? Or do we escalate tensions and, and risk a, a, a World War Three? It's an incredibly difficult situation and I wouldn't like to be Isn't... in the firing seat. But one of the things that I really would guard against is trying to make too many historical comparisons. Yes. Because actually we're into a very different geopolitical era Although, right Mo, I'm going I'm to say this to you. Ukraine is probably the world's only former nuclear power. 
Now, let's just be clear, when they had the Black Sea Fleet, which was probably unsustainable, they wouldn't have been invaded by anybody. Mm, and mm. some might also say as well that when they gave up those nuclear weapons, there was various promises being made at that time that are now not being kept. Quick reminder as to who my panellists tonight. We've got Andre Walker, who's a columnist and commentator, writer and researcher Mel Lovett, and Nigel Nelson, editor of the Sunday People. Uh, an interesting little fact here about Nigel is Fleet Street's longest-serving political editor. And I always crack my hilarious joke <laughs> when I say this, because I say I always thought you were 21, Nigel. But how long have you been a, a political editor for? Uh, since 1986. Since 1986. So I'm on seven prime ministers at the moment. Seventh prime minister. Crikey. <laughs> maybe, maybe even your eighth soon. Well, you never know, and yes. All this party if we get our up. way and Bor uh, Boris Johnson goes, yep, there'll be another one coming along. Oh, there'll <laughs> be a lot of people responding to that, Nigel, I can tell you, I can tell you. I can feel my Twitter feed building up now. <laughs> yes, yeah, the people there saying, oh, now, now is not the time to change Prime Minister, is it? What do you lot think? Um, Terry has been in touch saying about war crimes. He says, you know, when we talk about war crimes... He would want them to be looked into. He says, what about people like Blair, Bush, etc.? What about investigating those guys? Uh, Terry, I am saying absolutely nothing. Uh, many of you writing in saying about the war crimes, everyone is assuming uh, that Russia will be found guilty of things like genocide. Uh, Elise, I think that's how you say your name, you're saying, last time I checked, it's all about innocent until proven guilty. There's also a sense, I have to say, that many of you uh, writing in, Stuart says, no offence to you, Nigel, but the mainstream media have lied to us so much and so often in the past in, just in order to get a headline. Now, how do we believe a thing they say? Mo is shaking her head. Why are you shaking your head, Mo? <laughs> um, because I think this comes from the from the pandemic, doesn't it? And, and, and the fact that a lot... I mean, GB News probably wouldn't even exist if the mainstream media hadn't taken such a, a kind of one-sided view of Brexit and then the pandemic as well. But that's not to write off um, the truth of journalism in and of itself. I think there's been an awful lot of kind of... Journalists, journalists have agendas, they have a viewpoint, they bring that to bear on their stories. I'd much rather have a much more objective uh, journalistic class. There is a medium between us and the truth. That's kind of what the media means. Um, and we haven't really got that. But uh, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and imagine that everything we see coming out of the mainstream media is a complete <laughs> fabrication. It's just... Well, there you go, Stuart. Mer told you then, didn't she, in response to that? She's not having any of it. Right, let's talk COVID, shall we? Uh, Ofsted of today released a report uh, highlighting the latest casualties of lockdown. Young children, I mean, kids are starting nursery now. Uh, they can't understand, you know, like facial expressions. They've got limited vocabularies, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? At the end of the day, this is just the latest casualty because gynaecology waiting lists of England, in England have risen by 60% during the pandemic. We hear, don't we, all the time about mental health crises. We know we've got the NHS waiting list. We've seen the economy uh, absolutely decimated. Really? Nigel, was lockdown worth it? Uh, yes. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, God. And you knew I would say that. There's always one in um, there. Yeah, I, th I think it was. I think we were facing an unprecedented pandemic. Um, it was killing people at a remarkable rate. We've actually developed a vaccine in record time that seems to be dealing with it so we can start to live with COVID. But all the things that went wrong uh, in, in schools and early years, a long time since I've had young children, so this came as news to me about what was happening in, in early years in uh, nurseries, um, 
uh, and childminders. What do you mean it came as news to you? Well, You're... I mean, in the sense that I've been thinking in terms of all the education that children had, uh, had missed in primary and secondary schools. I hadn't given a lot of thought, and I should have done, to what was going on in early years. So if you've got um, a child who's only ever seen their entire life an adult behind a mask... Well, like which... my child. My child was born in the pandemic. Well, exactly. There, there would be an example where that, that's all you've ever seen. That must have a, a very strange effect on you. The idea that they um, ended up in front of television screens and, as a result of that, took on the accents of people that they were watching in mm. dramas. I mean, the question, really, at the end of this is, quite clearly, damage has been done. It needs to be rectified as soon, well, before they go to primary school. And as far as I can see, we should be looking, for, looking forward to how you actually solve this problem. And I think this was down to the parents. So do you think lockdown was a price worth paying? I'm afraid so, yeah. Oh, Nigel. Well, Andre had to speak some sense. I was going <laughs> to say, adopting the accent of people you see on TV, thank God that Brookside's finished. But, uh, but <laughs> anyway. Imagine loads of kids watching TV news. <laughs> 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 but all around But look, let's just be clear here. Absolutely 100% clear. This is the price you pay for the banana bread piety. Those people who took to social media going, I don't mind sitting at home for the good of the nation, yeah, but you were on fixed income, retired anyway. Right? I think that I think that the behaviour of certain people has been just despicable. I went to the funeral um, a couple of weeks ago of somebody who was an additional death during the COVID pandemic. He was somebody who was a personal trainer who had effectively drank himself to death because he wasn't working because of the lockdown. Now, people like Witty and Valance and Boris Johnson will all sit down and say, job well done. The fact that he's died proves that we should have had lockdown. It does not. I think in this public inquiry that we're going to have, we're going to have to ask ourselves, what was the cost of the piety of these people? What was the cost of the people determined to sit at home? Because it made no difference to them whatsoever. You know, nobody could collect uh, the bins because it didn't matter. The bin collectors were on uh, fixed income from the council. So who cares if they don't go to work? Time and time again, well, a, group of, a, group of, a group of... A group of... I'm sorry, I, I, believe, I believe a group of public sector workers and largely, it has to be said, our friends from the teaching profession, both retired and otherwise, really hijacked this country and we are paying the price for their piety. No, and I think they should apologise. Can we focus in on this one issue about early childhood development? Because you said it... Not while there's the teachers show. to insult. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, exactly. You know, we can, we, can, we can kind of play that kind of blame game, but you said it at the top of the show, Michelle, um, you didn't need a report to work this out. The idea that human beings need other human beings, particularly in that very elemental stage of their development early on, where they need facial expressions, they need to see somebody else other than their mum and dad in a mask. They need to speak to other people. They need to develop their language. What I think is really awful is I saw child development um, specialists at this time calling for further lockdowns, for more schools to be closed for longer. And when, when parents were expressing distress, they said, well, we can have a Zoom conversation about it. Mm. I thought this was dreadful. So you can Absolutely. blame the politicians and the health people and all the rest of it, but there are people in society who will actually look at child development... It was development like a fifth column. Years development, ..and they were silent on it. It's like so a the fifth column. So, the, you know, the idea that they're all coming out now with their reports and saying, oh, look at this terrible thing, it's absolutely disgusting. Oh, totally. We didn't need a more. report to tell us that this would have an well, impact Carol's on our emailed, youngest. Carol's emailed in saying... Um, we're talking about babies' facial expressions... 
So, Michelle, people didn't wear masks in their own homes, so why is kids not seeing any facial uh, expressions? Give it a rest, Michelle. Uh, you're spoiling a good show going on and on and on about your own opinions. Well, Carol, no, I will not give it a rest, thank you very much. Uh, not least when it comes to this one particular topic, I had a child in lockdown, as regular viewers will know, um, and I have found it absolutely... Uh, it's lunacy, if you ask me, actually, um, the way that some people behave around COVID, especially, I don't know if you've seen what goes on in China at the moment, in parts of China. I'll look at you, Nigel, because I bet, I wonder if you'd agree with this. In China, currently, as we speak, by the way, uh, they are separating children and babies who have tested positive for COVID. So if a baby and a child has tested positive for COVID and no one in their household has, they're taking the babies and the children off the parents. To, to put them into quarantine isolation. And I find that, I find it sickening, actually. And when I look, you know, I remember, actually, when I saw my child for the first time, you know, long story short, my, we had some health problems. My son was in intensive care for a, a long time. And they was telling me, you've got to wear a mask. And I said, no, I will not see my child for the first time. My child sees mummy for the first time with me with a stupid square of stupidity on my face. Well, I mean... You, I said no. And you had every right to actually say that. I mean, that was, that is your choice and your child, and we're not responsible for what is going on in China. Um, what we were talking about is whether or not the measures here were proportionate given the threat. I don't... And the... the um, an awful lot went wrong. I think we actually locked down too late uh, in the early days. Oh, and, nice and we raised nice. lockdown I too don't, early. I don't, I don't, but if you think back to the, to the beginning of all this, Patrick Vallance, chief, uh, chief scientific advisor, he was talking about a good result being 20,000 deaths. We ended up with over 160,000 deaths. Had we not taken some of no, the measures we did... Those 160 didn't die all, uh, because of COVID, by the way. They weren't all exclusive well, COVID deaths. I mean, you can argue this about flu, that, in fact, in this country, um, only 1,500 people actually die of flu a year. It's other things that go with it. But we, we say that flu is the cause of around 20,000 deaths. But, 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 may, but may, may I make a point? And, 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 you know, maybe this is darting off topic, but after the Tony Blair Children's Act, it is simply not true to say that uh, Michelle had a right uh, to see her child without PPE. It is the responsibility now legally of the state to make a decision of what is in the child's best medical interest, not the parent. Had those doctors told her that she was required to put a mask on or not see the child, had those doctors also made a medical assessment to say that it was dangerous for her to see the child, she would not have seen the child. And the court has upheld that on multiple occasions. By the way, I, I personally think the Children's Act should disappear. I think it's abusive, but that is the legal position. I mean, I think the point is COVID didn't affect everybody in society in an equal way. We knew fairly early on. I, I, I kind of was in favour of the first lockdown. If it had been short, sharp, and we could have, we could have really halted that kind of spread of the disease. But we knew from very early on that this was disproportionately affecting the elderly. I mean, in a lot of pandemics, historically, it's the weakest in society, it's the very elderly and the very young. This was extraordinary in the sense that it didn't affect the very young. So actually, we could... Have there were had, in we could have had a much more many, kind of measured and sophisticated response which protected those but, people but, that but, needed but, protecting and allowed 
young children in the most important part of their development to have developed but didn't, their but, natural but, but, way. But just to take that a little bit further, aren't we now going to say to ourselves at the end of this is, uh, you know, in, in solidarity with Granny, who, by the way, I mean, my mother died of lung cancer during the pandemic. She was perfectly capable of staying in her own home and she didn't get coronavirus. In solidarity with her, we were banning children from going to school for no medical reason whatsoever. But, but there is a good reason for that. The trouble is, I mean, this goes back, back to, our, um, to our children in nurseries and so on. Children catching COVID took it back home, infected their parents and then infected their grandparents. Now, until the, the um, uh, vaccination came in and gave us all a measure of protection, that was... Nigel, Nigel, for many, Nigel, that's, that's Nigel, for many people, happen. for many people, it was perfectly, perfectly possible, I appreciate not for everybody, for gran and granddad to isolate whilst younger members of the family went out. My own family, we put a ring of steel around my mother because of the lung cancer, but we also wanted the, her grandchildren to go to school. You can do both. There's no reason why you can't do both. Well, you, <laughs> you can do both, but a, lot of, but a lot of both wasn't happening. And that, and that was the difficulty. The kids have still got to go home to their parents in the evening. And if you look at the infection rates, as, the, as it went up in schools, then it also went That's up true. in the age group of young parents. Yeah, um, you will have seen this, I'm sure you might have seen it. A John Hopkins uh, study said that actually COVID lockdowns and you know, measures, etc., only reduced deaths by 0.2%. Um, make of that. What you will. Uh, anyway, going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I want to talk to you about travel, of course. Uh, oh, there's not a break. They're shouting in my ear. Don't go to the break. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. I there's thought, no break. I thought I was going to have a second there to have a, a good slurp of my cup of tea, but oh, obviously not. Uh, so let's talk, shall we, then? Easter holidays, of course, the first day of that. Everyone's trying to get off on holidays. Don't blame me, quite frankly. Uh, lots of us haven't had a holiday for quite some time, but... Hold your horses, my friends, because if you were excited about your holiday, you might have been stuck in queues. We've had queues everywhere. Uh, flights cancelled, Eurotunnel uh, delays, you name it, there have been problems. Mo, why do we seem to have these levels of problems all the time uh, in this country when it comes to travel? It's quite funny, isn't it? A lot of the travel companies are saying it's because of COVID, and I think EasyJet have said there's inf insufficient staff to meet the rising demand. Um, I mean, I just don't buy that at all. It's always chaos at the Easter holidays every year, even uh, pre-COVID. Um, but the idea that um, people who've had two years uh, of a, a horrible pandemic and mm. might suddenly want to get away at Easter doesn't come as a surprise to anyone, I would have thought. You know, we, 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 you know, the travel company should have expected this kind of increase in demand. It's exactly what people need, especially with the weather starting to turn nicer as well. But it happens every year, doesn't it? And I think it's partly because we do, we do live in a kind of just-in-time kind of economy where, you know, staffing levels are, are not really prepared for the very lows and the very highs, and they're just kind of tick, tickling along in that sense. But, um, yeah, it does beg a belief that the travel companies couldn't have worked out that we might have had a demand for holidays after two years of a pandemic. Mm, Andre? Um, I have to say, um, you know, you, you, we, everyone on this panel and indeed yourself get paid to be here, right? Uh, it pained me when I got Omicron to cancel, uh, you know, GB News appearances and other TV and radio appearances uh, because, you know, I just felt a little bit and I'm, I don't mean to be rude, a little bit stiff for one day. And, um, no, that wasn't rude. A little bit stiff for one day and a little bit tired, and that was it. And, and, and look, 
my, my instinct is to say that if you've got coronavirus, you probably shouldn't work in an airline. But at the same time, because the closed environment, but at the same time, you can't get away from the fact that this Omicron now is so mild that, you know, it, it, I, I don't understand why people can't keep moving. We've got to get back to work. And at some point, we've just got to get on with this whole thing. And I get the way that BA have been more organised, because BA are more organised. What's the matter with you? What are sorry, you laughing at, Nigel I just can't believe, you believe I'm hearing this. What? What are you saying? It's so, I mean, yes, I can. Um, get out of it. Get out of it. <laughs> but, but the whole thing about, about we, we take Omicron, and this is why uh, I think Ryanair should have prepared for something like this. Omicron is now uh, infecting something like one in 16 adults at the moment. You're absolutely right. It, it's not as serious as Delta was, but... We don't. We, we shouldn't go to work and infect everybody else when we've got it. So it's quite understandable. Yeah, but you go to work with a cold. No, not anymore. Yeah, the and last I, thing I, you've I, done. I, I sincerely hope that people no longer go to go to work well, with I colds would. and with flu and say, look. If you are infectious, stay at home. That's the one well, thing. But they, they're talking, you're talking about having nobody in work. If every winter, everyone who has a cold, everyone who's a bit fluey, everyone who's got a bit of a runny nose, right? If none of those people went into work, nothing would happen. I mean, I think we've just got to, just, we've got to have some gumption here. But is this really to do with COVID? I mean, it happens every year, doesn't it? Every single Easter, there's yes. chaos. No, the difference is people, people, I hope, will not start trying to struggle into work if they've got a cold or flu or they're infectious and then infect colleagues. We've actually no, I... learned something from the pandemic. No, we haven't. Yeah. We've, I, le we've, no, we've I... learned, we've learned, well, we've learned. No, 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 but no, haven't, haven't, haven't we, haven't we learned that if you wrap people in a medical cotton wool, you destroy your economy? Isn't that what we've really learned? That actually the risk aversion is the greatest risk we face. If we ban anybody who's ever feeling slightly under the weather from going into work, we are going to bankrupt the country. There's a difference between being slightly under the weather and... I mean, we're bankrupt already, <laughs> thanks to Richard. <laughs> but we will make it work. You can be more bankrupt. <laughs> well, um, Victoria's messaging is saying, Michelle, I think so many people are forgetting that in the 80s, we had teacher strikes for two years. She says her last two years of schooling was disrupted. At most times, they were lucky even just to get a morning's lesson and school finished at 12 o'clock. Uh, there you go. Some people, I guess, we don't know, we're born now. Do you still use money? Phil has been in touch on the email and he said, as far as I'm concerned, cash is king. He puts it in capitals just to make sure I've registered that. I did. He says money doesn't talk. It screams. Well, I'll tell you what seems to be screaming out at me at the moment. All these signs that say cash no longer accepted. Uh, in fact, I had it just this morning. So I did when I went to a cafe. A big sign on the door saying contactless and card only. Uh, it doesn't really bother me because I like using my card, but for many, it is a problem. Andre, should we be worried about this? Is there a push to get rid of cash? Well, I've got, I've got a bit of mixed emotions on this because I've been doing a huge amount of work in Ukraine and we've been buying up all of the old cash trucks that used to drive around the bars and using them for humanitarian aid for people who are driving through areas where there's small arms fire. So, in a sense, I've kind of benefited from it a little bit. But, um, but look, I think people need to have a level of choice. The number of places that I've noticed that re are refusing to take cash is relatively small. I've got to be honest with you, and I think everybody who knows me knows this, my favourite pub is Weatherspoons. Man, the people. 
Unlike you, Nigel. Uh, right, man the people, man the people. Um, and to be honest with you, I just use my Weatherspoons app to order at the table because I'm incredibly lazy. So, look, I like cash. I believe it's a great tradition, but I don't use a huge amount of it. And Mert, Peter has just written in <coughs> and he makes a very key point indeed. He says, Jubes, do not confuse a cashless society with a digital economy. They are very different. He says, I would have personally no objection to a cashless society. I would encourage it, in fact, but I'm very against a digital currency and economy. And I think that's interesting what he says, because there is a lot of concern around people that actually this whole kind of getting rid of cash isn't just about the transaction of cash. It's more about a movement towards digital, whether that's digital currency, whether that's digital ID, etc. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is um, a tendency to conflate all of these issues, mind you, I do think. And I think that it, it, we, we would be helpful to kind of try and differentiate between them. I mean, personally, I don't care if I pay cash or card. Um, it's whether I can afford it is kind of my problem with this massive cost of living crisis at the moment. True. I think that's first and foremost on people's minds. Um, but I mean, certainly digital cur currencies, uh, there's, there are issues around that in terms of democratic control. You know, we've just had a fight for national sovereignty. We've got one going on in Ukraine now. If you don't have that kind of ability to control currencies at the national level, then I, I do think there are some problems there. Um, but I think this idea that we're going to move to a digital economy, that there's going to be a cashless society and therefore we'll all be in some kind of Chinese-style social credit system is a little bit for the birds. Again, I think it's people running away with themselves, uh, being impacted by the pandemic, reading too much into these things and we can tackle anti-democratic and authoritarian things as and when we are confronted by them um, but coming back to the cash issue so many people in rural communities elderly people actually there's quite a lot of informal economy goes on at kind of the lower end and I think this report that you talked about uh, Michelle says that you know households over £50,000 a year are much happier with the cashless society than those that are kind of trying to budget I love that what did you say in the, in the no, I, love, I love the way I love the way you said informal economy at the lower end. Well, that's what is. that's what we used to call cash in hand. I know. <laughs> well, you know, you tip the pizza man yeah, or you tip your hairdresser or you know, there was a woman on the train today, she was really distressed and she was actually kind of talking out loud about how the fact she had no money. And I thought, God, if I had a fiver, I'd probably slip it in her hand as I walked out the gym. But I didn't have a fiver. I'd well, have walked the other way and bought a savoury. Homeless people. <laughs> no, it's a bit it's a bit scary, I think, on that front that beggars are now uh, walking around carrying sort of um, uh, cash uh, <laughs> card readers yeah. um, uh, if you haven't got cash. When I knew I was doing this item, I actually looked in my wallet and I didn't have any cash in it whatsoever. I, didn't, I can't remember the last time I've used cash. So I went straight to an ATM, so I've got it. I just feel more comfortable with it. And for the 10 million people who prefer to use cash, mm. of course they have a right, right to, to carry on with it. I mean, if they find it, if they're on low income, often it's easier to budget. Even if you put your um, grocery, uh, grocery money in a jar, um, put your gas money in another jar, and your money for pet food for tiddles in the third jar, if that helps you to manage your money better than having a credit card where you're never quite sure how much you've spent. I think you have every... So I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I've got, and I make this as a serious point. One of these... Um one of these things to put your cards in simply because... What's that? Well, th the thing is, there's loads of people nowadays wandering round train stations and public places with a card reader that steals money from your card as you walk past. And so if you have a metal wallet with your cards in, it's much safer. 
There we go. It's it's like watchdog now, isn't it? Well, there, <laughs> there you go. go. There you go. That's that's Andre's top tip. There. Get yourself a metal. I don't even know what that is. A metal card box thing. It's a little yeah. metal metal thing. There we go. Look, no, oh, it's it's beautiful. Look, there we go. We'll show that. Well, Della, Della has <laughs> loads loads of cards in there. I'm doing all like, I'm doing all right for myself. You're flashing all your cards. So you've just said you've got it in a metal box. By the way, if you're watching, cards. if you're listening on the radio, not watching what's going on, Andrew has got this uh, metal box basically to stop people <laughs> nicking his card details while simultaneously. Flashing his card details. I don't think you could see to them. the camera. So everyone's going to be pressing pause now, trying to rinse your bank account. As, as, as if there's anything in my bank account. Yes, of course, I don't condone such behaviour. Uh, Della says a cashless society, Michelle, would mean that every penny spent by anyone would be recorded. It would indeed. Annette has been in contact saying, as a former head teacher and specialist in communication and interaction for 30 years, I found it devastating and heartbreaking to see the damage that was caused to the children by lockdowns. Uh, someone else, I've lost your name now, you've just messaged in saying, stop blaming out. Absolutely. Everything on uh, lockdown. Someone else has said, Michelle, what you need to do is read the Great Barrington Declaration. I've already read it and I agree with much of it. Uh, Mark, Mac says, your guest who's saying that people should stay at home with a cold is talking rubbish. I've got to say, it's not him that's saying it. That's the advice that we've been receiving. However, I do agree with you that it's absolute rubbish. Deirdre <laughs> says, stop telling everyone that your opinion, Michelle, is the only one that matters. I don't think, uh, Deirdre, mine is the only one that matters. I do, however often think that mine is the most sensible one that you'll hear all night. <laughs> anyway, on that note, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much to my panel, Andre, Mert, Nigel, and thank you to you at home for your company. Have a great evening, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.